Polarisation is the buzzword of the moment. Many fear that the very future of the United Kingdom is now under threat. Many voters are concerned that the democratic process could be at risk. The overriding story you'll hear about our politics, about our society, is that we've never been more divided. I alone can fix it. I am your voice. Polarised, a new podcast from the RSA. It's presented by me, Ian Leslie, and by Matthew Taylor. It's about trying to understand the polarising political moment that we're living through right now. Subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm uh, Anthony Painter. I'm Director of the Action and Research Centre here at the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event, the Orwell Prize 2018. Um, just before we begin, um, can I ask you to switch your mobile phones to silent? Uh, we're filming tonight and live streaming over the web, so welcome to everybody who's watching online. Um, and a reminder that the hashtag is hashtag Orwell Prize, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation on Twitter. Um, it's a great honour to welcome to the RSA the Orwell Prize, the Orwell Foundation, the amazing writers across many different forms that it recognises, and all those who work with them. Crucially, we also recognise the stories of those whose lives are observed and the people whose stories are told. The RSA's own interest is to strive for what we call a 21st century enlightenment. What this means in practice is that through our ideas and research, our events and digital platforms, our fellowship, and through social action, um, we work with many to com confront some of the biggest challenges we face as a society. Now, where there is progressive change, it is preceded and precipitated by the acute eye of brilliant writers and journalists. George Orwell, of course, was the best of the best. Um, but throughout modern history, the gaze and storytelling of writers highlights injustice and creates a sense of urgency. Um, in a week, and we've seen innocent children locked in cages on the border of one of our erstwhile friends and allies. Uh, it's clear that things are far from well. Um, and we look on at a society where voices are being lost, economic insecurity is rife. There is often a sense of anger and confusion and an increasing sense of polarisation and marginalisation. 21st century enlightenment feels perhaps slightly more distant today than it has for some time. The challenges explored and explained in political writing, from poverty to cultural alienation to the threats to our democracy, centuries-long divides such as gender power imbalances, to a globally imbalanced society, to the growing realisation that we are not all seen as equals, including in our own society. This creates a sense of urgency. Now, hopefully we at the RSA can make our contribution and we think about matters from ranging from the future of work to universal basic incomes to a new deal for rural Britain to new forms of deliberative democracy and schooling that has an expansive mission. But without an understanding of the severity of the challenges, without the facts being put on the table, the stories being told with honesty and compassion, our work and the work of many others risks becoming futile. So thank you all. And thank you to the Orwell Foundation for honouring this generation of writers and for choosing the RSA for your prize ceremony. I wish you all the very best, and it is with great pleasure that I hand over to Professor Jean Seaton, Director of the Orwell Prize. Um, so we'd like to welcome you all here tonight. Um, the journalism judges 
for this year's Journalism Award, which you'll see awarded in a bit, uh, kind of instructed me to run an event on Grenfell and why, how the story of that story did and didn't make it through into our media because they felt that the journalism that they were looking at wasn't quite yet the whole story of what had happened at Grenfell. So they knew it was the biggest story. So I was instructed to do that, and I'm really grateful to tonight's speakers, and, uh, 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 and I'm particularly grateful to Campbell Robb, who, before he was CEO of Joseph Rowntree, who's one of our great sponsors, was also CEO of a shelter. And so we asked him to chair an event just beginning to look at the story of the story of Grenfell. So. Thank you very much. Uh, if there is a more daunting task in, in, in a campaign or a journalist's life to sit under Orwell's picture uh, uh, and try to uh, kind of bring to life a story, I, I don't know what it is. Um, it's a real pleasure. We've got about 40 minutes uh, here. Uh, and what I think we're going to try and do, and I'll just introduce the panel in a moment, is really start to get to an understanding. Everyone in this room, uh, uh, certainly I have been involved in campaigning in many years uh, and many stories and many things. And half the time I think, why didn't that? Why hasn't that happened? Why isn't that news? Why didn't that come across? Why didn't someone cover that? From homelessness uh, to building uh, to poverty, we struggle every day, many of us, to try to get something across. Uh, and the sort of title of this is, why does it take a catastrophe uh, to make this happen? So we're very, very lucky to have Peter Apps, who's a news editor of Inside Housing, who's going to kick us off and talk about what it was, what, why is that story that might have been rumbling around and, and something that had been talked about uh, in trade press and, and other things, why had it that didn't come out of there? We've got uh, Felicity Lawrence, who many of you know, an award-winning uh, and former winner uh, of one of the Orwell Prizes, journalist at The Guardian, who's going to talk about that interaction between politics uh, and the news and why, what might, that might have been the circumstances. And then we're really pleased to have Antti Anaxagoro, who, who's a poet and a, a, a kind of writer, an essayist uh, and a performer, who's going to talk a little bit about what it's like uh, to be, bring voices to the fore. So uh, I'm going to kick off. They've, I've already told them that I'm quite a difficult chair. Uh, they've got five minutes each. Uh, so, Peter, over to you. Um, okay, thanks, uh, Campbell. Um, so, for those of you who don't know about Inside Housing, um, we're, a, we're a trade magazine. Um, we're, we publish to people who work in the housing sector in, in council housing or housing association businesses, typically. Um, and we've always written about fire safety because fire safety is a big issue for those readers. Um, in particular, uh, in 2009, uh, many of you may know uh, that a tower block in South London called Lackanal House caught fire. Um, and that resulted in the deaths of six people. Um, and when you looked at what caused those deaths after we had a long public inquest and inquiry and um, recommendations to the government and eventually prosecutions. Um, it was pretty clear that, one, there were some really serious failings, and two, that those failings probably weren't unique. Um, they were probably more widespread. So my magazine took, took the decision to, to kind of make that a campaigning issue, and um, we, we started looking into the issue of fire safety, particularly in high-rises, and that coverage went on from Lackanal right through to a month before Grenfell when we published a piece called A Stark Warning, um, which was based on some FOI responses we had showing that um, plastic had been fitted to a high-rise in Shepherd's Court, which caused the fire to rip up over nine floors. And no one died in that fire, but they very nearly did. Um, and a quote from that story, which, I, again, it was published in May, Last year, five weeks before Grenfell, which the Chartered Surveyor said to us, he said, I'm worried about cladding systems in general. 
can be a catastrophic problem, particularly when flames can get in through windows and a staple policy is in place. Um, so I think what was happening then was the trade press, particularly us and a couple of other titles, were talking about this issue, but it wasn't resonating into the national media. And we sort of said, why, why does it take a catastrophe? Well, it was a catastrophe. Six people died in, in South London, but for some reason, that wasn't a big enough catastrophe. Um, and it, it's difficult, really, to put my finger on why the national media didn't take that up. I think um, that there is definitely a lack of specialist reporting at times, um, and uh, particularly journalists in the kind of political and social, media, social policy side are led by what politicians are debating and, and what opposition politicians want to be on the agenda. Um, and this was never a comfortable topic for Labour or the Conservatives because the failures that led to Lacanal happened under a Labour government and the failures that led to Grenfell happened under a Conservative government. So sometimes I think the national media does fail to set the agenda. It follows the agenda. Um, I also think that a, a big issue with, with, with Grenfell Tower was that this, this was a local story. It was about local people and it was about a local refurbishment project that went wrong. That's never a national media story. It's, it's a local story and it belongs in the local press. Um, I started my career as a local news reporter in West London and lost my job three months after getting it because of cuts. Um, it wasn't covering the patch on Grenfell, but where Grenfell was covered is, is an almost identical story where reporters weren't embedded in the community anymore. They weren't out listening to people. They weren't talking to people. And so they didn't know that their Grenfell Action Group blog was publishing these kind of dire warnings about fire safety. Um, so I think we've, we've kind of in the, the, the space between Lacknall and Grenfell, lost both the sort of grassroots democracy that comes from the local press and, to an extent, some of the um, accountability that the national media can provide because, um, you know, we, we think about 24-hour rolling news cycles. It's, it's all about, you know, the next day's news bulletin, the next day's deadline. Um, and there's less space, especially in the, the, the political and social policy world, for that kind of longer term more thoughtful reporting that, that, that picks up on an issue that isn't widely reported. I would just say, I don't know how I'm doing for time, Campbell, but okay. <laughs> um, that, that story, which I mentioned, called A Stark Warning, where we said that there was stainless steel and flammable polystyrene on the outside of five tower blocks in Hammersmith and Fulham, and there was a warning from the London Fire Brigade that that might be um, more widespread throughout London, which specifically warned London boroughs to check the cladding on the outside of their building for high-rise risk. Um, I pitched that to the Evening Standard, and I pitched it to BBC London, not asking for a fee, but just saying there's an interesting story that your readers probably need to know about, especially if they live in high-rises. Um, and I didn't get picked up, which actually surprised me. That, that wouldn't have been covered at all. Um, and so the other thing I'd say is that I don't know that the national media has always paid that much attention to safety issues where they affect people in council housing in the same way that it, it might take a story about a failure in the NHS, for example, or um, the, the airline industry or something. So safety in council housing has always been viewed as a niche issue. And so some of these stories about fire safety, sprinklers not being installed, the, the recommendations from Lacknell being ignored were, um, were missed. I see Campbell nodding at me. No, I was <laughs> absolutely going to echo that. My, our experience at Shelter, it was exactly that. If we, we could get a story about middle-class renters paying too much rent in London uh, into every newspaper on every news bulletin on every day that we wanted to, uh, I, I, mostly because the journalists themselves were middle-class renters uh, paying too much for their rent. And I, 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 but could we get a story about social housing or the lack of social housing into the stories? There was a, there's an absolute there's a momentum about certain types of stories that become the one and housing, in my experience, the last seven or eight
or eight years has been that story, has been one of those stories where you can get certain types of stories in, but anything else is just not of any interest. And it was, it's always been, in recent years, it's, the, the, the political agenda has been about supply and increasing supply. Yeah. It hasn't been about safety of existing homes. And that covers fire safety, but it covers quite a lot of other things as well. Yeah, indeed. So, Felicity, into that context... Uh, you have a sort of plea from, Nash, uh, from local, hard-working uh, kind of trade press, beavering away, putting out these stories, uh, making it clear that something's happening, and yet we have a gap that's not being picked up. Yeah, no, I think there are two parallel things going on. One is the changes in journalism itself that mean that the sort of news ecosystem that would have fed that kind of story into a national debate is actually really under threat and in danger of collapse. But the other is that there's a parallel changes in, in the political system and, and that you need to kind of look at them together. But to look at the journalism first, I mean, we do masses on social housing. I think the difficulty with a story like this is it's very hard to write about risk. Uh, you can write about it briefly, but it actually isn't a national story until it becomes an event, and that may seem appalling, but that, that's the, the truth. It's very hard, and I've written endless stories about risk. I was absolutely convinced that British gas dereg privatizing, deregulating, failing to train gas engineers was going to result in lots of gas explosions because I had lots of similar technical information from experts to, to the housing story. And, and we wrote it, but it never happened. So it's not, you know, it never became the big story. And, and there is so much risk you know, in the rails, in the NHS. It's actually quite hard to turn stories about risk into really big news. Um, I think in terms of the ecosystem, there used to be, when I started, uh, a, a system where you'd have very local papers who would have perhaps covered the fact that the tenants were furious about stuff and worried about fire. That might have fed into a sort of bigger local paper or a regional paper, uh, and national news desks would have been looking at those, and your story remains local until it's a catastrophe. But had, had there been lots of regional papers covering it, as perhaps in the past, uh, that becomes a pattern, and news desks respond to patterns and, it, and can make a story of it. But those local papers just aren't there anymore. Uh, they're being concentrated into the hands of a tiny number of companies. Three companies control 71% of national media, but a handful control 81% of local titles. Uh, and so what's happening is the local press is being scooped up and concentrated. You've got centralised uh, reporting that being fed back into what looked like local newspapers, but they don't have any reporters on the ground actually going out into estates, talking to tenants, picking up on that sort of story, which takes real uh, shoe leather. And that's why you've got this loss of voice outside the metropolis. Uh, London's got two newspapers, but they're really national newspapers. They don't function as regional or local papers at all. Uh, and in the local press, uh, there have been 400 jobs lost in the last 18 months, according to the NUJ. So there's a huge collapse in, in, in local reporting. I think at a national level, we've seen also the, a very dramatic change in how specialist reporting takes place. Uh, again, when I was early on in my writing career, uh, I was a specialist. You would become very familiar with the trade press. You would have an inside-out knowledge of the regulations and where they were being changed, and that would feed into stories. Uh, we've all become much more global. Uh, the specialist reporter tends not to, to be given space to be a, a reporter of record. We're not papers of record because there's just so much stuff coming in. Um, 
I think there's a real lack of diversity in training. People used to train on local newspapers, which forced them to go out and talk to real people in real communities. Uh, and that's slightly looked down upon now. And anyway, the local papers aren't there. So you've got people doing uh, very good degrees at universities in media studies, MAs, but they don't have that connection with local communities, uh, which I think completely changes your perspective because it's in the local community that you understand the intersection between policy and politics and ordinary people's lives. And that's where the politics is for me. That's what I try and do when I do my reporting. Um, you've also got the, you know, the problem of journalism. I mean, news desks are so overwhelmed sometimes by the volume of stuff, the speed of stuff, the need to get it up first before anyone else. I think there's a lot of listening and, uh, and, and a capacity to read more widely, to talk to reporters more widely. Uh, and then the formats themselves dictate a lot. So we've, about half our readers now read on a mobile phone. Uh, we write a lot of 300-word stories because that's the easiest thing to read on a mobile phone, but that completely militates against the kind of complex, in-depth reporting that weaves in technical problems with what people feel and so on. Um, now, none of this is kind of isolated from the political system in that, in the, you know, this is... This is what the neoliberal consensus of the last four decades was sort of aiming for. And the Grenfell story is an awful lot about deregulation, about outsourcing long chains, the diffusion of accountability, which, which was a deliberate, is a deliberate kind of government policy and has spanned different governments. And it makes it very hard to hold government to account, but it also makes it very hard for journalists to track it. I mean, I looked at your inside housing in-depth story about all the different companies involved in the cladding in Grenfell. And, and there are lots and lots of names. It's complex. It's not something that lends itself to a 300-word story. Um, I think on top of that, we've got government closing down on communications, which has been really significant in my working career. When I started, you would be able to ring a departmental press office and say, I want to understand this issue or that issue. Could I have a background briefing with some senior civil servants who really know what's going on? That doesn't happen anymore. You can't even have a conversation. They say, could you email your point? So there's not that talking to people in which you think the story might be this, but in the course of a long conversation as a reporter with someone who really understands it, you think, oh, that's what it is. That's the story. That's much more interesting. Those conversations aren't happening. They're not happening in newsrooms. They're not happening in government because government won't let them. Um, last point. Um, I mean, housing is a Cinderella subject. It has been. And I think in that, 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 that the news media are mirroring government. It, it, it's only now got a a Secretary of State for Housing who's been, you know, it's been elevated because of Grenfell. Uh, so, that, you know, I think it's always important to remember when you're talking about the shortcomings of the media that they do reflect the general political system. Great. So, Anthony, just to kind of bring us, so one of the things that was most striking about um, the immediate aftermath uh, amongst the anger and the grief was the sense that the journalists were as much part of that failed establishment as the politicians, as everybody else that had, had failed them, that they had been failed by the whole establishment, not just by the politicians or the, the council or the MPs or those things. The whole system was rigged against them. Uh, and, and in our work at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, we find that all the time. People in poverty feel trapped, absolutely trapped by the circumstances around them, that any, any interaction they have with any form of the state doesn't allow them to tell their story with the nuance, the difficulty. You're either a form or you're a tick box or you're a part of this. 
your experience and the things that you, you talk about and you write poetry about is kind of part of it. What's your take on this? I think my issue was more to do with the lack of journalistic rigour that came from the tabloids, to be honest. Um, I had friends who were in the tower and, and who passed away. And to see the way that the Daily Mail particularly handled the reporting um, of what had happened was really quite upsetting. Not only that, the way that it feeds into people's um, imagination as well. The things that, the reason, should people, should people die because of the fact they were poor and because of the fact they were immigrants? This story became racialized very, very quickly. On the 15th of June, the Daily uh, Mail had a headline of the Ethiopian taxi driver. And they said, this is the man who caused the fire. And that was, that was the headline. Not only that, they felt their need to disclose his race, as if that was implied in the fact that this was the problem, is we have immigrants coming over here, which played in to the xenophobia and the nationalism that we're already seeing happen on a wide scale, which then led to other people turning around and saying, particularly in the rich parts of Chelsea, we don't want these people coming here because of the fact that this is what they're capable of. There was another headline that I read a few weeks after that that had one of the survivors of the tower had been to prison for six months for possession of marijuana, as if that was a worthy enough excuse. And it, for me, it really just kind of showed that there has to be some kind of, of way in which we can now use the media to give information in, in a decent and, and moralist way. Um, I think... On a national level, newspapers like The Guardian were very clear with the way in which they, they were reporting. But as Grenfell unfolded, it became more and more complicated. And what that basically meant was that we were shown less and less of the bureaucracy and the corporate greed and the negligence that led to the fire. And it became a story of tragedy porn. And, and sensationalism, which is what you kept seeing, was pictures and stories and news of families that had been, had been moving apart. But there wasn't really anything in there that could let you know the hows and the whys. So people's attention started to be less focused around the kind of political side and more to do with the fact that there's still 147 households that have not been relocated. It's been a year since the Conservative Party have said we promise to rehouse everyone, yet there's still 147 people still without homes. I think these are the kind of things that the media need to focus on, but they didn't. And the final point that I'll make is that on the day of the event, my friend sent me footage because he lives opposite the tower and he sent me footage of the, of, of, of the burning. And he had a friend who went in and didn't come back out because his friend's family lived on the top floor and he said, I need to go and get my mum and my sister. But his friend didn't come out. And I went on social media and I, I wrote a statement talking about it's important to see this as a political uh, catastrophe. And the backlash that I received was, why are you trying to politicise this? This is not a political event. This is a human tragedy. But the reason why people have to live in council estates in the first place is political. And to not have it as a political event is to do a disservice to the people who died. Because that's the only reason why people get lumped on top of each other. In a building made of petrol, made of fumes, made of plastic. So I think that this was really interesting for me to, to kind of navigate that space and just see how different ideas and opinions were compartmentalised as the humane versus the political, the inhumane, the immoral versus the political. So I think 
that's where, you know, I think we need to do a lot of work within that. That's an absolutely fantastic point. I think that, that it is the political establishment uh, always wants strategies to be human uh, when, the, 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 when the, 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 the reason will be political. We cannot separate political and human. Uh, uh, we create up a political uh, discourse and dialogue to ensure that we manage ourselves as, uh, as humans well and to, to try to disassociate those is absolutely wrong. Okay, so I've managed our speakers well uh, uh, so that you can have a say. Now, don't go ruining it uh, by making long statements uh, when you do, because I'll be as hard on you as I have been on them. This is your opportunity to... to we're trying to understand... We've had some great perspectives on maybe why. Uh, we, we've got people digging away these stories. These stories aren't being unearthed. They exist. They are there. We have residents and voices on social media, on blogs, saying what's happening. We have journalists picking it up uh, at a, in a sort of trade press, but not so much in the local. Uh, but we're having people disassociating themselves and pushing back on the tragedy. How do we find a way through this uh, that would begin to create a new voice and a new way of reporting so that risk can be reported, proper voices can be heard, long stories can be read and, and taken and complexities brought back in to discourse. We've got 15 minutes to do that, so no problem, uh, everybody. So who wants, there was a gentleman there. Um, keep it, say, say who you are and just a quick question or comment. Oh, yeah, yeah there is also microphones. Hi, I'm Joe Plowman. I'm a journalist at the BBC. Um, I was interested in the voices that we're hearing because there's one I've been noticing, and I was curious whether any of the three speakers feel this is coming through to them. I've been noticing many people who have been whistleblowers on programs working with us, people who are passionate about particular issues, have been coming to me increasingly as citizen journalists. I'm not talking about bloggers. I'm talking about campaigners pitching stories about people going to the news media and saying, I've done this work, I've done this investigation. I just uh, was curious whether you see citizen journalists playing an increased role in these problems. That's a great question. I'm going to take a couple of questions so we can get a, a kind of variety of views so I can get to, come on, other people must have something to say. Okay, let's go to citizen journalists while you're all thinking. Let's say, I, I, I was literally I was going to say before that some of the best um, articles that I read in the aftermath of, um, of Grenfell were from independent journalists and bloggers. They were absolutely phenomenal. And yeah, they were long reads, they were detailed, they were complex, but that's what it is. And you need to have that level of investigation if you're going to understand something that essentially was that began after World War II. So you're looking at something that is, you know, 50 years old, like the history of social housing in this country and its purpose and who gets put there and who doesn't. So I think that I found a lot of um, relief and comfort and broadened my understanding of something through independent journalism. I, my, my, I was at the Sheffield Documentary Festival last week and we were talking about how voices and people of poverty and we were on a great panel with but people like Jack Monroe, Daisy Mae Hudson, these are great. But the pushback these women get when they stand up and, and have a voice like you did, the pushback that they get when they stand up and say, this is happening. Daisy Mae talked about her time in a, in a halfway house, absolutely moving and great film, but real pushback, Jack Monroe as well, really talking about what it's like to be poor and try to look after children and make a statement about that. They absolutely, the, the toil and the stress that it is to take on that role, it's very, very challenging. We don't create a supportive atmosphere for this, I don't think. Felicity. But, I, you know, when Grenfell happened, I think reporters did go to the citizen activists. They did look. You could say they could have done it before, but it, it, it is actually quite hard to do it before. 
Uh, so I, don't, I think you know, they, they were a key part of covering it and trying to get the deeper story, the deeper narrative about, about deregulation over a long, long period, uh, all sorts of you know, changes in attitudes to social housing, uh, cuts and so on. Um, so, but it, it is quite, I mean, the, the Andrew O'Hagan piece, which many people maybe have read, which is a long, long read about Grenfell, uh, and he's quite hostile to the uh, campaign activists. Uh, but one of his, which I think is unfair, they were obviously made, made a huge difference to reporting, but one of the difficulties was that he was saying they, were, they had lots and lots of complaints, so that, that the one that became the significant one wasn't picked up before. Um, I'll just add on that as well, Campbell. Um, uh, really briefly, there were, there were two pieces of citizen journalism that really impressed me in the aftermath of Grenfell. Um, one was a, a very, very, very long but incredibly good piece by um, a group called Architects for Social Housing who, who held a meeting and brought together loads and loads of experts and campaigners and so on. So I'd say anyone who wants to really understand the background, that's a good place to start. And another one is, is a blog called The River of Life, which is uh, by a guy called Andrew Chapman. And he... I would credit with sort of teeing us up and some other people like Newsnight and Panorama to, to look in depth at some of the regulation issues because it was just something he decided to pick up on. And so if anyone's just after a bit of good citizen journalism, those are good places to start. Very much. Okay, we've got with that. There we go. See, thank you for being the first because everyone else is jumping in behind you now. So the lady there and a gentleman behind you there and the lady over there. Thanks. Um, I work in a uh, work for a newspaper in Manchester, so I just kind of wanted to put out a plea for um, of defence for local press, and also that we don't just do stuff that's 300 words long, uh, and we do actually go into quite a lot of depth with quite a lot of social issues, and we find that we have a big audience for that. Um, so I kind of wanted to put in a note of optimism. Um, thing about why does it take a catastrophe? I don't even think Lacanol was the first catastrophe. Um, I wrote something about Grenfell last week or the week before, and somebody tweeted a link at me um, of an Adam Curtis film done in about 1984 that talked about the failure of system-built housing in this country, and you know the slum, the, the clearances that happen in places like Manchester because they built these factory-made estates which just were not fit for purpose, and generations of essentially poor people suffered as a result. This is a much longer story than what has just been happening. Go over the last sort of five or ten years or so. That was just kind of the point that I wanted Absolutely. to make. Absolutely. Uh, it's generally been the case in this country that poor people get poor housing, apart from some very, very brief periods where uh, they got some decent housing, but the general rule has been that. The gentleman behind you. Yes, of course. Um, Sorry, could you just say who you yeah, are? Yeah, John Bailey, I'm long retired. Uh, but, of course, Anthony's right. Of course housing's political. Anyone who's lived in central London since the war will know why tower blocks were built because there was no possible way in which local people could be housed. The fact was that many houses were bombed, as was my parents, and there was nowhere else to live. So it became the easy, acceptable way to build these massive tower blocks. And there are plenty in Finsbury that show how it shouldn't be done, and plenty in Finsbury that show how it should be done. Lubeckin built a block of flats or two that were exceptional and still remain to be so. So they house all types of people. But coming back to journalism, Journalism of any serious consequence stopped when Murdoch got off the plane. I was at the Sun at the time, and I was in Fleet Street for 20 years. I saw copy takers and copy uh, tasters making sure that the message was actually what the newspaper was about. So the idea of anything of consequence, certainly matters relating to housing, was way, way down the list. Never been any different since that time. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, uh, and one more over here. 
Hi, I'm Sumay Thompson and I work for Media Trust and we help charities and underrepresented communities have a stronger voice by helping them with comms training. Um, I have a question about whether you think the press learnt from Grenfell um, because I think there's a different tone and approach in the way that they, including the Daily Mail, reported on Windrush. That's a good question. Let's start there. Felicity, do you want to take that one first? Um, Windrush is a really interesting example because uh, Amelia Gentleman was writing about that for months and months and months and she did get to the point where I think it was said, haven't you written about this before? I mean, you know, and, and then it suddenly cut through. And I think a lot of, I mean, if you actually look at our housing uh, coverage, we've covered masses of stuff, but it doesn't cut through until something else happens. But has the media changed? Uh, do you think there is a change in tone in the media since Grenfell. Uh, is Windrush just a, a kind of just one of those stories that would have happened anyway? Uh, we get every so often, we get one of these stories that just whooshes us through, or is it actually as a direct result of the fact that people are, are thinking about how they report and talk about the communities in a different way? I, I, don't, I don't think it's changed. I think, you know, sometimes you cut through and sometimes, you know, the Daily Mail piles in with you and sometimes it, it attacks you. I mean, I don't, I don't get a sense that things are radically different. No. I, I think with the Mail particularly, it's very much like a Donald Trump Twitter feed um, in which it's incredibly mercurial and one minute it goes one way and then it goes another way. So it's kind of difficult to gauge. Um, I do remember that it was quite hostile uh, during the... The, the, the emerging stages of the wind rushing, and they changed their tune a month, a, a week and a half down the line. It was on completely the side. So I'm not sure if I mean they have a stance. They're provocateurs. I get that. But then at the same time, there is the the level, the, the, the question of ethics and and morality that you have to, to bring into play here and responsibility. And for you, a plea for a local press, but also a plea for you know quality trade press. Do you say are more people coming to you saying, "Tell us more"? Are you getting more interest when you pitch that story now? Uh, will you? Do you think you'll get that covered? Yeah, I think certainly with um, the high-rise safety issue. I mean, there's a story about large panel tower blocks, which I won't go into, but it dates right back to Ronan Point, which was a disaster in Newham in the 1960s, and that was the subject of a quite a lengthy news night piece just a couple of weeks ago and I don't think that would have happened before Grenfell. Um, I, I agree about the local press like in a lot of ways I mean there's there's really great journalists working in the local media and lots of great stories. I think actually where it's been worse treated is in London. Um, I don't think that anyone's figured out how to make the local media model work in London where communities are a bit more transient and people are kind of moving around a lot um, and my experience even I was on the local press in London in 2013 and where it is now compared to where it is then, there's been huge cutbacks. And I think in London in particular, there's a massive democratic deficit. The Manchester Evening News and a bunch of other papers in Manchester, um, we take stories from them every now and then, and vice versa. You know, I think they're good, good titles. Okay. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's not make any comment about the editors of those local national yeah. papers and where they come from, uh, but uh, let's move on. Uh, more questions, more comments, more thoughts. Um, gentlemen up the back. Uh, hello, uh, I work for ITV Granada in the northwest. Um, I think there's a point I'm going to make really about the local press thing. I come to these events and I hear people talk about the press and the media and so little is ever mentioned about local TV stations and local radio stations. I think BBC Local Radio is incredible. I work for ITV, so um, I, I've not, not got any skin in the game on this one, but BBC Local Radio stations are incredibly important and don't get enough credit in these conversations about local stories. They do incredibly uber-local stories. And equally with regional news, ITV and BBC included, 
do a lot of local stuff, a lot of local digging on lots of local stories. And I just think in these kind of conversations, we talk about the press uh, without really mentioning broadcast enough. So that was just the point, not really a... Absolutely right. Since I made that point, I'm not for a minute suggesting there aren't good local press out there. I um, but, I, but, I, but I, you know, council meetings generally are not covered anymore. I mean, they're, 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 I think the... Um, Media uh, Reform and Media Coalition talked about two-thirds of the country not having a local press presence rooted in their geographic area um, in terms of print. I mean, you know, those things matter because they used to have much more capacity for doing that holding government to account. I mean, of course, local and regional TV and radio does a very good job, but, but you're, I think on the whole, you're not able to go and sit in boring council meetings and actually pick up all the sort of things that Grenfell threw up about what was going on in the council. Okay. Down the front here. Any others? And I'm going to get then. I'm going to take this as the last question, and I'm going to come back and ask you all just to kind of reflect or what one, one or two changes you'd like to see happen as a result of what's happening. Uh, yes, Richard Blair, um, <clears throat> just a normal human being. I would like to make a statement <clears throat> on behalf of my father that were he alive, and I have absolutely no proof of, of what he would have said, but I would like to think that had this happened in his time, he would have um, very quickly have cut through a lot of the obfuscation of all sides, both press and government, very, very quickly in this, in this tragic uh, circumstance. And that's all I'd like to say. I think that's absolutely true. And uh, we all wish he was uh, more, you know, so we have, but it is how do we get those voices that, that it, how do we don't, that's national figures that can cut through that aren't just political figures, aren't just journalists. It's the, how do we make that happen? So uh, I'm going to come around the panel because we're just coming towards the end now. Things that you'd like to see happen from your perspective that could change. What would change your ability, your magazine's ability to, to foresee this happening and make it stop in the future? Um, What's your lesson uh, it's, uh, it's, um, I mean, part of, part of it is uh, people have talked about whether or not Grenfell was political um, and, and also housing in London dating back to, to, to the war. And it's just, it sort of makes me think that um, before the mid-1980s, we, we had regulations in London which said that you couldn't have anything combustible in high-rises. Um, and that's one of the reasons why London didn't burn down during the Blitz. Um, and then that was changed progressively from the mid-1980s um, due to the Thatcherite period of deregulation that's followed since. So, I mean, it's impossible to look at this from any side and not see it as political. I think that the, the, the biggest thing for us would be um, for national reporting to kind of pick up a bit more on some of trends like that. Um, and, and when small things are changed, to kind of reject the, um, the, the lobby briefing or the, um, uh, the, the spin that's put on the press release a little bit more and um, ask more difficult questions um, about those things that, that do become quite... And sort of, you know, read the, read the full report rather than looking at the exec summary. You know, I don't know, there's not much time in the media, but um, I think that that's... It, it, it's taking that kind of the sort of slower news that is, is more associated with the trade press and, and doing that on a national level and understanding that, one, people do actually have an appetite for it, and two, um, there's a real public interest, even if it doesn't necessarily get you the, 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 the click straight away. That's great. Thank you very much. Felicity? 
Uh, well, I think it was Orwell said that there's politics in everything, and, uh, and I think that uh, reconnecting by going out on the ground and realising that the smallest, apparently dull things, when you explore their detail, are hugely revealing. Um, and uh, thank God for the long, slow bits of journalism that, that some of the press still allow people to do. Okay. What would you like to see change? I mean, you can't really ask the tabloids to change because that's what tabloids do. But, um, but you can ask people, I guess, to read more critically between the lines and to want more from their journalism, to be more informative uh, and to be more genuine rather than sensational um, and just obsessed with, with tragedy, um, which is what it seems to be, the overriding story. So I think, for me, that's really what I'd like to see change. And to stop using the deaths of poor people as a, as a means to, to shift newspapers, because essentially that's what Grenfell became towards the end. So I'll, I'll take a punt, a chair's privilege as well. I, I would say that from, uh, from uh, what I would love to see and just need to see more is, is making news in tandem with people, uh, as opposed to uh, not all journalism can be uh, citizen journalism, not all, all journalism has to be objective, but actually, uh, we were lucky enough to be part of a, I was lucky enough to be a, a part of a, an event hosted recently about Down and Out in Paris. Uh, uh, and and the, the real, realness of, of Orwell's experience and bringing that to the fore and the life that he did that. He did that beside and with people, uh, not, uh, but brought his own critical observation to that. But we just do not have the voices in our media, in any form, in media, in local, in national, in any form, that is genuine and real. And, uh, and we have to find ways to get people's voices in because that frustration and that anger about the people at Grenfell felt that they just hadn't been listened to. We have to find ways to get that expressions out into the mainstream media and work with people to do that. So um, can I take this opportunity to get you to thank our excellent panel who have done a sterling job in a very short time to give us some great insights. And I had one job, which is to hand back to Jean at seven o'clock. So uh, bang on time, uh, or back over to you for the rest of the ceremony. Um, sorry, I'm Jean Seaton and I'm the director of the Oil Prize and I, I'm really just a compare. So I'm going to try and get everything through. I'd like to just say um, that as the director of the Oil World Foundation, if you haven't seen some of the other things we've managed to do this year, we've done, we've read Down and Out in London, but if you wanted to come to Paris, you could see it re reimagined in the light of lots of work with people who've been homeless and contemporary poverty using uh, and destitution, using Orwell's works, dramatically reimagining them. I'm going to do it all again in Paris. Um, so if you want to come to Paris on the 28th of September, uh, do. Um, and we also, earlier on in the year, uh, launched Stephen Armstrong's book on the new poverty, which was exactly coming out of work we'd done in, with, with Stephen in local communities. Um, so... Uh, now we get to the prize-giving bit, the sort of prize. Uh, we'd very much like, first of all, to thank our sponsors. We are very, very tiny, and we make every single penny work harder than you can imagine. And we couldn't do anything without our fantastic sponsors, who are historically the political quarterly 
the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, who've been absolutely wonderful to work with, University College London, which has given us a birth, and Richard Blair Orwell's son, who's sitting in the front, who it's always wonderful to be in the same room with. He's not, you've not only got Richard, but you've got, so you've not only got Orwell's son, you've also got Orwell's grandson, Gavin, and Orwell's great-grandson, who's also sitting in the front, who's become... So, but we, we depend on them. I'd very much like to thank the absolutely wonderful staff. I've got a very, very tiny team of Robin and Jeremy and Lauren um, and Stephanie in Germany. And they, they throw themselves with great intelligence and determination into everything we suggest they do, which is really ridiculous of them. They should grow up and start to say no. Um, um, finally, we really... Well, I want to thank our, our, this year's judges for the prizes. Um, they are... They, their independence and variety of taste and variety of political view and impartial way of going about reading and judging have given the prize, the prizes, the authority and legitimacy. They're not owned by any bit of the media, they're not owned by any institution. They are, uh, we, as far as we can make them, it, what Orwell wanted, the judges who will produce uh, the, the view of the best political writing as near to an art as, uh, as was his ambition. So our judges this year uh, on the books have been Andrew Donis, who's watching a book tonight, so he couldn't be here, um, Alex Clark. Kit Duval and Lauren Kite. We're really grateful. They, and, and there's an earlier sifting evening. Some of you may have been to that, uh, which adds a sort of a variety of gender and age and class and taste. But we're really grateful to the judges. Our journalism judges are Sir David Bell, used to run the FT, Pearson's. Uh, Professor Suzanne Franks runs wonderful journalism department at City. Eleanor Goodman, the first ever political, female political editor of a major television channel. And Rachel Johnson, who's sadly not here today. Again, they bring a great variety of experience and taste. Um, and then for Britain's social evils, which has had the deliberative in intention, in a sense, of trying to engineer some of the stories we've been hearing about today up the news agenda by really rewarding some of the more complicated technical journalism that goes on. Um, uh, uh, so we'd very much like to thank this year's judges, Felicity Lawrence, Campbell Robb, Farrah Storr, the editor of Cosmo, somewhere over there, I think, uh, and Nick Timmins. So we, 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 we really do depend on a huge team of people who believe in British and international politics being a very wide and important thing to develop as we move forward. So the first thing we're going to do now is um, have the Political Quarterly Prize. Political Quarterly was set up in the 1930s, had people like Keynes on its, on its board. Um, the Orwell Prize was originally set up by uh, Sir Bernard Crick, who was an editor of Political Quarterly. I couldn't possibly say how easy Bernard was to work with, um, uh, and Political Quarterlies has a long tradition of bringing technical academic work into the public domain by writing about it clearly, and surely if Keynes could do it, more of us could try, us academics. Um, 
And so Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect, the thinking magazine for thinking people, I've always thought, um, is going to award this year's Crick Prize for the best article in the political quarterly. Uh, so you're looking at a long tradition of talking clearly about complicated things. Tom. Thanks ever so much, um, Jean, and good evening to uh, everyone. Um, as Jean says, um, Political Quarterly uh, has got origins in the, in the Bloomsbury set, which means uh, it just about predates um, Orwell's famous writing. Um, <laughs> and um, so it's delighted to support uh, the Orwell Prize because it's got that, that, that same interest in um, fine writing about um, political things that goes right back. Um, and um, we've taken the chance to tack um, onto the evening um, uh, a prize that's just about what was the best article in um, Political Quarterly during 2017. Uh, there's some slightly eccentric criteria by which um, the pieces were judged, this time by Andrew Gamble. So there's an all-well test, which is, is the piece written in good, crisp English. There's a scholarship test, as you might expect, a durability test. Will this still be interesting uh, a little while down the road? Originality. They've added a new um, uh, Bernard uh, test, which is, uh, would Bernard Crick um, have uh, uh, enjoyed the paper? Um, and then there's the Alzheimer's test, which is, will you still be able to remember the conclusions three days after you've finished um, reading the paper? <laughs> 2017, of course, was a pretty extraordinary political um, year. Um, we thought things couldn't get stranger after 2016 with Brexit and Trump, but then 2017 had an election that was meant to be a landslide and turned into this um, extraordinary stalemate with a result that very few people inside the bubble had seen um, coming. Um, and uh, from that, um, we had some remarkable... Um, pieces from that year, Jerry Stoker on the Cosmopolitan Axis, Vernon Bogdanor on the election of Trojan horses, Felicity Matthews on the meaning of mandates, um, but the winning entry um, uh, is for a paper which um, touches on Brexit and the Corbyn surge by way of, and I'm not exaggerating, Thucydides, um, quantitative easing and the generation wars. Um, uh, it really is uh, remarkably ranging, four paces, pages of uh, crisply written stuff um, called It's Still the 2008 Crash, and it's by Helen Thompson, who I hope is here. Yes. Mm. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so I'd now like to introduce uh, Campbell Robb and Farah Storr to take us through the first uh, prize, which is the, uh, uh, the Orwell Prize for Exposing Britain's Social Evils. So we're, we're not shilly-shallying about. And um, they're going to do, do the introduction. And Richard Blair is going to give the check. <laughs> Thank you.
see so many of you, um, and Campbell, I'm sure you'll agree, I have to say, reading the entries this year, it makes me so proud to be an editor and a journalist, and all of my team at Cosmo, I've said, go and read the shortlist, because this is journalists acting at the best um, of their abilities. So, um, this has ab absolutely been a momentous year of change, um, one in which we rely more than ever on our very best journalists to seek out the truth and present it back to the world. As myself and the four other Orwell judges read the entries for the Orwell Prize for Exposing, exposing Britain's Social Evils, um, what, we've look, what we were looking for um, was work that not only offered real insight into social issues in the UK, but which also offered emotional impact too. This is, of course, what each of this year's nominated candidates have done, creating works of journalism that are as brilliant and brave as they are beautifully crafted. We are, of course, here to announce the winner, but before we do that, on behalf of myself and my fellow judges, I wanted first to say something about the incredible shortlist. So firstly, Panorama's entry, Behind Locked Doors by Joe Plowman, was a brilliant expose of Britain's prison and detention system spiralling dangerously out of control. The judges described it as painstaking and hugely courageous work on the part of the two undercover reporters, Joe Fenton in Northumberland Prison and Callum Tooley in Brookhouse, as well as Joe's skillful use of secret filming to deliver indisputable evidence of real and current social evils. Mark Townsend's feature, meanwhile, Four Young Black Men Die, Were They Killed by the Police, showed great tenacity in tracking down witnesses and winning confidences for his brilliant observer report on police brutality. Mark's hard investigative work was worn lightly in the beautifully crafted writing, but he still gave his story great moral force. Channel 4 News entry, Her Name Was Lindy by Andy Davis, Anja Pop and Di Baker was another piece of hard-won journalism, this time on the tragic death of a homeless young woman. The judges described the work as smart and thoughtfully crafted, shining a human light on one of our greatest social evils. Meanwhile, the Financial Times' On the Edge was a collaboration featuring reporting from Sarah O'Connor, data analysis from John Byrne Murdoch, and photography by Christopher Nunn, which took a different approach to exploring Britain's poverty crisis by dissecting the social evils plaguing a seaside town. The judges described it as both a brilliant combination of ice-cold analysis and real human interest. Manchester Evening News' entry, Spice, by Jennifer Williams, was another piece of stunning journalism, which set out to expose the dangerous and widespread use of the drug Spice. The journalist's tireless reporting shone a clear but very human light on one of the escalating social evils of our time. And finally, Patrick Strudwick's BuzzFeed report, This Man Had His Leg Broken in Four Places Because He Is Gay, told the story of a hate crime over six months. Immaculately researched and beautifully written, Patrick's work explores why the wider world still allows such violences and prejudice to grow. The judges described it as a masterclass in long-form journalism. So, as you can see, it was an exceptionally strong set of entries. With great insight and empathy, each one masterfully showing how journalism can expose, challenge and facilitate change. But, as ever, there can only be one winner. Um, so, um, it, uh, it, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation is absolutely proud to, to work with the Orwell Foundation to support this prize, and I cannot 
urge you enough to, to read these pieces. Uh, they are exactly, I, uh, to hear, to, I think, what Orwell would have wanted and what the founder, Joseph Rowntree, would have wanted as well. Absolutely clear, hard-hitting, uh, bringing to the fore some of the challenges that we face in, in our communities across the country. They're absolutely brilliant pieces of journalism. And for someone who's a, a cynic about how voices get heard, it was a, a huge reassuring and gave me optimism uh, that there are journalists and magazines and people out there fighting hard to get those stories in and make them hard and to do that. So it was an almost impossible decision that we had to do. But uh, we had to pick a winner, uh, and uh, we did. Uh, and that was uh, uh, the piece by Sarah O'Connor in the Financial Times. And it's... I know there was a team in series here, and uh, John Byrne Murdoch uh, and Christopher Nunn were part of that team. But at a time when Brexit is dominating uh, uh, all, of the uh, all of the political uh, air, uh, to get out of London, to tell a story of a community that many of us for many years have been telling a story and communities like it, to put that in the Financial Times and to walk into meetings like I do every day to try and talk about poverty and people would say, ah yes, I read about that, about Blackpool, we need to talk about that. That's the type of journalism we're looking for and that's the type we're in for that. So thank you very much for an outstanding piece of journalism. <laughs> Professor Suzanne Franks, who I know is here, and Sir David Bell. <laughs> um, who, who are going to uh, award and introduce uh, the Journalism Prize. Brilliant, David. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, well, we um, have got six shortlisted candidates and we're going to go through them alphabetically in just a second, but we just wanted to make two points, first of all. And the first is that we, were, we read nearly 500 articles. We were seriously, seriously impressed by the range, the writing, the commitment, and we think that um, George Orwell, gosh, it would be wonderful if he was here, but he can rest easy, because good journalism really is alive and well in Britain. Secondly... Just a plea that next year we want even more entries, but especially from the mass market end uh, of the newspaper um, business and the website. I mean, in other words, we rely on people entering either their own work or their newspaper or their website entering it for them, and we didn't have enough from the mass market end. So we really, really want more. Um, because we want to be able to look at the whole range of what is going on. So now to our shortlist. And we're doing it alphabetically. The first of our six is Carol Cadwallader, who in February last year started, as we all know, a series of pieces. First of all, about the links between the Trump campaign and part of the Brexit campaign. And then that expanded into a whole set of amazing stories about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and campaign financing the role of Russia, and much more, even um, yesterday in The Observer. 
pain, persistent, painstaking, beautifully researched. The second one, Edward Carr, who is a, a deputy editor of The Economist, thoughtful, analytical, challenging, unexpected pieces. We were particularly taken by a piece he wrote at the end of last year called Vladimir's Choice. It was a magisterial survey uh, of the new nationalism and very prescient as we've been discovering all through this year. And thirdly, Sam Knight, um, three pieces, all wonderfully written. One uh, in The Guardian about what will follow the death of the Queen. Long may that not happen, but when it does, it was a meticulously researched piece, but about so much more than just the details. It was about what Britain is and what this will mean for us, and it was an excellent piece. And then two pieces in The New Yorker, um, a very perceptive profile of Sadiq Khan, and a very, very haunting piece about Grenfell. I thought the discussion we just had now was tremendous. Um, and the way that Sam dramatized what had happened um, and that set it in a particularly well-judged social context was excellent. So that's our first three. And the second three... So the second three um, start with Anthony Lloyd, um, who produced some absolutely remarkable reporting from the Middle East. He gains quite extraordinary access and delivers powerful insights into the harshest of all environments and shining a light, the pieces we particularly liked was shining extraordinary light onto the hidden world of, of ISIS. Um, the fifth um, journalist we, we shortlisted was Jack Schenker, um, he produced some beautifully written long-form prose, really in the, very much in the sort of or Orwell tradition, journeys to the heart of the sort of post-Brexit world. We especially liked his piece on Tilbury, which is really required reading for anyone who wants to try and understand le Left Behind Britain, a very fine example of that long, slow journalism that we've, we've heard about earlier. And our final um, shortlisted um, journalist was Janice Turner, she produced some brave and outspoken pieces on sensitive and highly charged subjects, gender reassignment, the elderly, and social care. They were all beautifully written opinion pieces which focus on grim and very disturbing material, but she writes with a sort of clarity and lightness of touch that, that all the, the, ju the judges very much admired. Great, so now to the winner. But just before uh, the winner, I, we just wanted to say thank you to, uh, to Jean um, okay. and to Robin, um, and the rest of the team who have supported us so magnificently. I think I can safely say we were quite often quite irritating because we lost pieces and got them upside down, various things. And um, <laughs> they were absolutely brilliant. Uh, so thank them very much. And to everybody here for supporting the Orwell Prize, which I think means so much to all of us. We're pretty sure that if George Orwell had been here, he would have been unanimous, he would have been unanimous as we were in choosing our winner. And our winner is Carol Cadwallader.
say something very briefly because this has just been a really, really, really difficult couple of years and um, there's been a kind of huge team effort which has got us here. And I can see Jane Ferguson, who's the editor of Review there, um, who has succeeded in getting these articles onto the page, which was no mean feat. And um, Sarah Donaldson, I don't know if she's here, but she's just been a really key person, as has our legal team. And I cannot overestimate how challenging it has been to do these sort of stories at every level, journalistically, um, editorially, legally, emotionally. It has been um, a kind of like being strapped to a, a freight train um, for the last 18 months. And um, I actually, there's something I kind of really want to say, which is that this is, we, I, I was late here because I was having a very sort of scary and troubling conversation with our lawyer, and that's why I'm late. And you have the thing up here saying, what makes a catastrophe? When does it cut through? And it, this has to cut through because what we are seeing here is a sort of systemic failure. So our laws do not work. And our regulators are, are unable to regulate. And we haven't got the information we need from the big tech platforms through which all of um, this data and these advertisements went in the referendum. And it is... It is, the, the, the panelling is kind of up in flames. It really, it really does feel like that to me. And it's a political failure because this, the, the government has this information and, you know, there is a small band of journalists and academics and all the rest of it and lawyers who are trying to, trying to sort of like wake people up to this. But it just does, it really does require kind of the rest of the press to pile in. And, um, and um, yes, yeah, sorry, I'm just going to leave it there. Anyway. Um, and now I'd like to introduce Kit Duval to talk about the final, the book prize. There's only one of me, but I'll be brief, at least. So, on behalf of all the judges, I'd like to thank all the authors for letting us read their work. For me, it's been the most fascinating education in contemporary politics, books written with insight and understanding on the back of years of research and a lot of hard work. The resulting books are beautiful, tragic, enlightening, surprising, angry-making, kick-ass, wonderful and deeply moving. They are all important books for dangerous and unsettling times. I'd like to read the judges' comments on the shortlist. Winter by Alice Smith. Witty, wise and constantly surprising, the second novel in Alice Smith's seasonal State of the Nation Quartet paints a delicate, historically nuanced portrait of Britain in the age of Brexit. A much-needed reminder that resolution, in life as in art, can only really come when each side learns to see something of itself in the other. Poverty Safari by Darren McGarvey. Can a left-wing structural critique be married to an ethics of personal responsibility? This is the big question at the heart of Darren McGarvey's vivid, passionate and relentlessly self-questioning memoir, which is truly a book for our times. 
Testosterone Rex by Cordelia Fine. Testosterone Rex is one of those rare books that manages to effortlessly mix science, social commentary, and a call to arms. It is witty, robust, and angry, but provides a new take and new evidence that helps us answer the age-old question of where women stand in the world. What You Did Not Tell by Mark Mazower. Mark Mazower's memoir of his father is filled with history's great events, the massacre of the Jews in Lithuania and the siege of Stalingrad among them. But Mazower brings to life not only a son's gradual piecing together of his family's life, but also a deep and rewarding sense of their inner lives and thoughts. Lovers and Strangers by Claire Wills. The depth to which Wills has researched and animated the lives of Britain's immigrant communities following the Second World War is astonishing, taking us far beyond the headlines and into the ports, dance halls and workplaces through which they passed. On Islamic Enlightenment by Christopher de Balligue. The nature and future of Islam is one of the biggest questions of our age. There are many who doubt whether the words Islam and Enlightenment should even be in the same sentence, let alone next to each other. De Balligue demonstrates a solid Enlightenment tradition and this book is compelling and urgent. And I'd like to announce the winner and before I do, I would like to read the judges' comments. It will become apparent who has won. This unflinching account of his life and the effects of deprivation and poverty is self-aware, brutally honest, and more urgent than ever. If Orwell were alive, this is the book he would choose. What distinguishes Poverty Safari from a straight description of a working-class life is his searing examination of that narrative that surrounds poverty and the way in which no individual, least of all him, can neatly be fitted into them. George Orwell would have loved this book. It echoes down and out in London and Paris and the road to Wigan Pier. It is heartrending in its life story and its account of family breakdown and poverty. By the end, there is not a scintilla of self-pity and a huge amount of optimism it made us see the country and its social condition in a new light. The winner of the 2018 Orwell Prize is Darren McGarvey for Poverty Safari. People cry at these things. <laughs> um, I'm just honestly, I haven't even thought about what I would say because I genuinely just didn't even consider that I would even be involved in this conversation. Never mind actually standing here. Uh, I'm just really grateful to everyone who has has been supporting the book, whether that be logistically with publisher Lewis, uh, Rebecca helping with publicising it in the early days. Uh, and all the, the strong word of mouth that it's been getting from all across the political spectrum. People are sometimes buying four or five copies to give it to other people because they feel very strongly that it, it, it identifies with them for some 
reason. I just, I just tried to write what I thought was was the truth as as uh, as politely as possible at points, and as pointed at points as I had to. Uh, but honestly, if I have to thank anyone, I really need to thank my family and my partner and just for all the support. It's been a real... <laughs> it's been so intense just trying to get a book finished while working five jobs and raising kids and not knowing what's going to happen. So really, it's just all down to my family and my support. My friend Marek here is lovely to share this with you. I won't rabble on too much longer. I'm really grateful and, 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 and thank you to all the other writers for all of their work and contributions on, on all the issues that they're covering. I'm just I'm really grateful and just quite stunned, to be honest. Thank you. could go and have a drink and you go out that door and um, I would really ask you to look at Down and Out Live which you can see online and I, I think there is really it, it's pretty gloomy right now but it may be it may be that there is some I kind of know the only way that we get from where we are through is by recognising truths however uncomfortable they are so go and have a drink and Get rid of the uncomfortableness. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.